Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition... Elizabeth Hine talks about gene repair imaging, and John August with Entropy and Egg Part 2. But first up, here's the news. Will the Large Hadron Collider open up a portal to another dimension? Large Hadron Collider data may unearth a parallel universe. CERN experiment to test if we can connect to another dimension. Scientists at Large Hadron Collider hope to make contact with parallel universe in days. Something may come through dimensional doors at LHC. Scientists escape through dimensional portal at LHC. Okay, I made the last one up, but the others are real headlines. You may be forgiven for thinking the Large Hadron Collider is being used as a gateway to other universes. The reality is not as dangerous, but maybe more colourful. The Large Hadron Collider is set to operate at higher energies than before. Proponents of a quantum gravity theory called rainbow gravity predict that quantum black holes will be formed by the collisions because gravity is stronger than it appears. Rainbow gravity says that gravity leaks through a fifth dimensional direction into a multi-dimensional universe, making it look like a much weaker force than electromagnetism or the nuclear strong and weak forces. The standard model of physics says gravity is as weak as we measure it to be, the weakest force. And, as a consequence, the standard model predicts that producing quantum black holes would need enormously more powerful collisions than the Large Hadron Collider will ever be able to produce. Quantum black holes are quantum-sized, smaller than an atom. Stephen Hawking predicted that very small black holes would not be stable because of the creation of matter-antimatter pairs on their event horizons. Photons of light spontaneously pop up in a vacuum for the shortest length of time, Planck time, 10 to the minus 37 seconds. In that time, they decay into a matter-antimatter pair, say an electron and positron, which then recombine to light and then disappear back to non-existence as if they never were. Almost no harm done. However, next to a black hole, one half of the antimatter-matter pair 
could escape, while the other half falls into the black hole to be trapped. The escape of spontaneously created quanta is known as Hawking radiation. The smaller the black hole, the more Hawking radiation it emits, and the smaller black holes evaporate because they lose all their mass to the infalling antimatter. So quantum black holes are expected to be very bright with Hawking radiation, and to evaporate to nothing very quickly, in about 10 to the minus 27 seconds. Quantum black holes radiate in a particular pattern when they evaporate, which could be found by the Atlas Particle Detector at the LHC. If we see this signature pattern, we'll know there are black holes forming at lower energies than the standard model of physics allows. If this prediction of rainbow gravity is fulfilled, then the theory is on its way to creeping away from the fringe and being taken more seriously. Mir Faisal, one of the three physicists behind the experiment, says that if rainbow gravity is correct, then the Big Bang never happened, because it would be impossible in the new physics. No infinitely dense singularities are allowed. The Big Bang theory relies on the universe starting from an infinitely dense single point. Rainbow gravity is named after the prediction that gravity affects different colours, wavelengths, energies of light, differently. So, if we were to watch a black hole eating up some white light, we would see a rainbow pouring into the hole, as each of the colours were pulled in by slightly different forces of gravity. $750 pill sold by a rival for a dollar. He who lives by the loophole dies by the loophole. You may recall the story of how the American Food and Drug Administration awarded exclusive marketing rights to a generic drug, Daraprim, that was out of patent for over 60 years because a drug manufacturer conducted clinical trials which made the drug comply with the FDA's new rules. This company raised the price from a dollar to $13.50. Hedge fund manager Martin Shkreli's Turing Pharmaceutical Company bought these exclusive rights and raised the price of Daraprim to $750 per pill. He pointed out to the press that there are government programs working with health insurance companies so that many people could still afford his life-saving pills, even at the outrageous prices. It's just capitalism. The market will bear it. He then went online and made himself the most hated man on the internet by boasting in every social media forum. Shkreli has a history of advising his investors to short the stock market based on gossip. That is, to bet that the share prices of pharmaceutical companies would go down. He got enough press that Hillary Clinton went on TV to say she'd push new regulations to stop this kind of profiteering. This caused a huge drop in the price of pharmaceutical company shares, which would have made anyone who bet the prices would go down a very large sum of money indeed. Shkreli has been pushed to lower the price on this anti-parasite drug that is needed by people suffering from immune deficiency, say from AIDS or cancer, but he hasn't done so. Despite the medicine being out of patent, no other company can import or make the drug without tests that compare it directly to Daraprim. Such a company would need to buy a large quantity of the drug for comparison testing. Turing Pharmaceuticals won't sell it to them. They only sell Daraprim one prescription at a time. Enter Imprimis Pharmaceuticals, 
have used a different loophole to bypass Martin Shkreli's Turing Pharmaceuticals market exclusivity. Imprimis are a compounding pharmacy, and as such, they're allowed to make custom medications that include the generic ingredient in Daraprim, pyrimethamine, as long as it's not the only ingredient. They're manufacturing pyrimethamine and selling it at just a dollar a pill by including another drug that prevents some of the drug's harmful side effects on bone marrow. So they're selling a better product for just a dollar a pill. Of course, Daraprim's market exclusivity only applies within the United States. Outside America, pyrimethamine still sells for less than 50 cents per pill. Imprimis Pharmaceuticals has announced it will start a program called Imprimis Cares, which will hunt out other generic drugs being sold in America for unaffordable prices and make compounded versions of these medications available for low prices. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Sarah Brooker with Neil Byrne runs Science in Public a science communications company who created the Fresh Science National Competition to encourage early career scientists to find the story in their science and get it out to the public. The Bright Spark Challenge is for these scientists to explain their research in the time it takes a sparkler to burn down, which is about 45 seconds to a minute, depending on the sparkler. For our first sparkler session for New South Wales, Here's Elizabeth Hine from the University of New South Wales. She has until her sparkler runs out, after which Sarah Brooker will ask her some questions. Sarah also asked the audience to contribute some questions, which the microphone didn't pick up. Fortunately, she immediately repeats the question, so you won't miss out. Elizabeth Hine from the University of New South Wales, come on up. Like waiting for the candles at your birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add the suspense. So the human genome is under constant threat from external agents and internal agents like the sun or mutagens or cytotoxic agents we come into contact with. And fortunately we have a surveillance system that identifies damage in our genome and then sends in a repair crew to correct that damage. But given that our DNA is organised into an intricate 3D network, it's not sure how these repair factors are recruited to that damaged site with such efficiency and accuracy. So we developed a cutting-edge microscopy method to track how molecules move in live cells and found that the DNA network rearranges in such a way that it forms a highway where these repair factors get funnelled to the damaged site. Well done. So you're talking, when you're saying the human genome, you're talking inside my body every day, DNA damage is happening. Yeah, in each cell. In every cell, DNA damage is happening. And why is that an issue? Because if it's not repaired correctly, then that can form uh, cancerous cells or cells that don't behave normally, and then they can replicate out of control. 
Okay, so that's a pretty good thing to keep an eye on then. Yeah. And what you've done is you've managed to develop a whole new microscopy method to actually visualise this repair mechanism. Yes, yeah, so we can visualise how the molecules are trafficked and then arrive at a damaged site and the role the chromatin network has in directing them to that location. So have you got some pretty cool pictures? Yeah, we have uh, uh, tracks of where the molecules move and now we're mapping how the chromatin network in the nucleus changes in real time. And has anyone else done this before? People have looked at the damage response in the context of the repair factors, but nobody's looked at it in the context of a living cell and how the nuclear architecture directs them in space and time. So this is the first time in the world that it's been seen in a living cell? It's the first time it's been seen at the single molecule level. Wow, well done, a world first, that's pretty cool. And tell me, you, you say you've actually developed your own microscopy method, so a new microscope, what are we talking about here? So it's using a regular confocal laser microscope, but we've developed a statistical algorithm that can pull out the average patterns of molecular flow. So while it looks like heaps of molecules are moving at once and you can't see from looking at the whole population how they get from A to B, we can statistically analyse the average route they take. So if somebody, if you have a stadium full of people and one person walks across the stadium, you can't see them in that population. But if there was just one person in the stadium, then you'd be able to track how they go from A to B. And this method can pull out that information. Okay. And did you see anything that kind of surprised you? Um, so one confusing thing that's never been understood is why opening and compacting factors are recruited to a damage site and from looking at how this So sorry, what do you mean by opening and compacting So factors? there's factors that open up the DNA and then there's factors that close it down and this modulates how accessible it is to repair. And so now we've found that it's only at the damage site it's opened and everywhere else is closed and then that's what facilitates their recruitment to that site only. Okay, and this is at the DNA level you're watching this happen? Yeah, or well, the wow. single molecule. Pretty, pretty close. So what, um, when you say single molecule and you were using living cells, whose cells were you using? Uh, this was done in the HeLa cell line, which is a human cell line. Okay. So, so directly relevant to us? Yes. Cool. And where to from here? Pardon? Where to from here? Uh, so now we're mapping the global, like we've been doing this at a local level at the damage site, but now we're mapping the global chromatin changes in the nucleus as a function of time, so over 48 hours, and monitoring the actual repair, and then how this is deregulated in a cancer cell line. Okay, any questions from the audience? Yes, out the back and then down to the front. What are the applications? What can we use with this new method? What can we use it for? Oh, the method? Mm. So, yeah, so it's applicable to any fluorescent protein. So if you're interested in understanding how any protein of interest moves through a cell from the cytoplasm to the nucleus or in an animal model, how cells themselves move throughout that animal, this uh, method can track how things happen with submicron resolution on any confocal laser microscope. So this is your method. Have you patented it, Elizabeth's no. method? No. 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 He just Anyone can use it. it. Yeah. Okay. We had a question down the front here. Um, so what does this mean in terms of uh, cancer or therapy? 
So cancer and therapies, will it have a direct impact on them? Yeah, it'll provide an understanding of how cancer progresses when this protective measure fails. So the whole point of the DNA damage site opening and then everything else closing, this could be used to reinstate that system in a cancer cell line and so that perhaps you could reinstate the DNA damage response and its proper regulation. Mm. Any other questions? No? Well, thank you so much, thank Elizabeth. You. Well done. That was Elizabeth Hine from the University of New South Wales with a new method of imaging gene repair. A special thank you to Science in Public for the permission to broadcast the Bright Spark Challenge. More Bright Sparks in the coming weeks. Last week, John August talked about entropy. This week he focuses on the egg. This is part two of Entropy and the Egg. Entropy is about the tendency of all things towards disorder in the universe, and eggs transform from being very simple to being very complex indeed when they hatch. Are eggs at odds with thermodynamics? So, what goes on inside an egg? An egg contains proteins, fatty acids, and a live bunch of cells to get things going. Oxygen diffuses through the eggshell, reacting with the material inside to form water and carbon dioxide, releasing energy. Now, it might come as a surprise, but that's what's happening. Oxygen is seeping in through the eggshell, with carbon dioxide and water coming out. One way of helping eggs keep is to rub them with wax, something that would prevent this exchange. In any case, this energy is then used to make the complex, lower entropy structures which form the developing chick. Some molecules are sacrificed on the altar of thermodynamics in order that other molecules might reduce their entropy and perhaps increase their energy content. Some might even ascend to the ninth sphere and themselves become information-bearing molecules, part of the DNA string which encodes the information needed for the cell's operation. While not necessarily glucose, it's easier to understand what's going on by imagining we're using glucose for the energy source. When we combine oxygen with glucose, we create water and carbon dioxide, molecules with higher entropy than the original reactants. So the egg exudes high entropy waste so that it might reduce its own entropy with the released energy effectively coming into the system being used to reduce that entropy. But while we might think of the sun being hot and feeding the earth with energy, we need to think a little more carefully about what is happening. Yes, energy is released, but not intentionally as heat. The reaction forms ATP molecules which the cell uses to form bonds without ever having energy present as heat. Effectively, we are shifting the bond energy from that of the glucose molecule to that of other molecules, perhaps the proteins as they form from amino acids, perhaps to others. I'd imagine there would be some generated heat, but it would be unintentional waste heat. However, it does seem that the waste heat generated is not enough to get the egg to the temperature at which reactions start. I don't believe that the eggs need to be warm in order to provide energy. That's provided by the ATP molecules, as far as I understand the details of these reactions. However, they might need to be at a critical temperature before the enzymes will be able to catalyse reactions, and there's the idea that reaction rates are generally proportional to temperature. In any case, that's why the hen broods on the eggs using her much more developed met metabolic system to generate the higher temperatures for the eggs to develop. In fact, it is known that you can remove the eggs laid over a period of days and then bring them together and they will then incubate and hatch at the same time. 
the eggs can maintain themselves without dying, even below the incubation temperature. That's different to mammals like us and birds like chickens. We need to maintain our breathing. We can't really stop that unless we're hibernating, and even then, we only slow down a lot. But for a recently laid egg, the minimum metabolic rate needed to maintain life is a lot less. In fact, we operate at a metabolic rate of approximately 100 watts. If you take the energy value of the food needed to support a person for one day, according to Alan Boroshek's calorie counter, 10,000 kilojoules for a 36-year to 55-year-old man weighing 65 kilograms, and divide it by the number of seconds in a day, 24 by 60 by 60, or 86,400, we get 116 watts, which will round down to a nice round 100 watts. So get 24 people together, and that's the equivalent of a 2,400 watt radiator. Well, okay, it does depend on whether you're asleep or awake, or even exercising, and how old you are, and how much you weigh, and whether you're male or female, but look, approximately 100 watts. But let's look at the power of a developing egg. We can look at the oxygen permeating into the egg through the shell. If we assume an oxygen concentration inside the shell of nine-tenths of that in the outside atmosphere, then there's a tenth of the partial pressure of atmospheric oxygen pulling the oxygen through the shell, after which you'd expect it to dissolve in the fluid inside the shell and then diffuse to the parts of the egg where it's needed. If we assume a reasonably sized egg, then you're reacting the oxygen with glucose and various other assumptions, well, then you get a power of 0.066 watts, or 66 milliwatts. Now, you can imagine that the waste heat from a 66 milliwatt chemical reactor is even smaller than 66 milliwatts, because you're talking about the waste heat, with most of that energy going into chemical bonds. That will not heat up the egg, so it needs to be incubated and provided with heat from the hen. And if you run a 66 milliwatt chemical reactor for 21 days, you'll use up about 7.5 grams of glucose. Given that a typical egg weighs about 55 grams, we see this is in the right ballpark. I've seen a claim that the mass of the egg diminishes by about 10% during incubation. Still, I'm assuming that the main bottleneck will be diffusion of oxygen through the eggshell. Other bottlenecks might involve the diffusion of the oxygen through the mass of the chick, or indeed the diffusion-limited rate of reactions within the cells. Cells are not so much growing as also dividing. And cell division is a process that takes time. Further, you'd expect only a small number of dividing cells at the start, with a maximum number soon before the chick hatches. So the energy would be much smaller at the start, only peaking at 66 milliwatts late in the piece. It is likely that during the time cells are dividing, they are not absorbing energy and nutrients. Something else which would take time is cell differentiation, starting off as stem cells and eventually changing to the terminal cell types. Further, the egg will probably use other materials than glucose for the energy source, other carbohydrates and perhaps protein. That's the amount of mass that the egg converted to energy in order to develop the, the rest of the mass of the egg into a chick. This calculation is necessarily rough and ragged, but I think it does illustrate what's going on. This also gives us an idea of why the chicken egg takes 21 days to incubate. Without a circulation system, a lot of the biological reactions will be diffusion limited, and so will take place at a slow rate, and a significant bottleneck would be the rate at which oxygen can permeate the shell. Though even given ample resources, cell division may still take a fixed amount of time. So this is may, may have been an evolutionary trade-off. 
A thinner shell would let through more oxygen, perhaps allowing faster development, but it will also be more fragile. I don't know enough to say for sure, but I can point to the influences on the egg taking 21 days to incubate. And so I've answered my own question, as best I can, to my own satisfaction. This is a difficult area to make sense of, and I've done my best to bring the ideas together without going too far out on a limb. Indeed, I've not been able to find out details like just what the reaction rates are in an egg, and I've had to make my own informed calculations based on what information I could find. I'll also acknowledge the contribution of Dr. Heather Main, who reviewed an earlier version of this script. Still, as I say, any mistakes are my own. And if you think I've made a mistake or let some, left something out, uh, please let me know politely via diffusion and we'll consider what you have to say. But at the end of all this, and I hope you'll agree, that there's a lot you can understand about thermodynamics just by considering what happens in an egg. You can start to see just what the second law of thermodynamics is and how unlike it is what the creationists claim it to be. It does not provide any in principle gap barrier to life developing and sustaining itself. That was John August talking about eggs and entropy. The second law of thermodynamics. People talk about it a lot, but not many people do anything about it. You're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness but it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and, and give the world freedom from want? It'll be up to you, and you too. There's no doubt what we need trained scientists. So you see, women need to know as much about science as some men do. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me emails so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are indexed by keywords, so you can easily find the subjects you'd like to focus on. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. 
You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.